you're coming bienvenue welcome back to another episode of that girl with the curls which is me sam yay um some of you might have noticed uh hopefully you did because you're invested in people and their well-being uh perhaps uh that i took a little bit of a break not quite a month but kind of close to that uh took some time off uh from from doing a lot of stuff just because i overcommitted to a few things uh, several things in fact and you know just general burnouts that that's going to happen when you're kind of running everything by yourself so uh thankfully uh back in the saddle so to speak with this awesome episode that is uh zach davison i met him at rose city comic-con and asked him if he would come on the podcast uh you may know that zach is the writer of these essays for the back matter of wayward comics which is uh out of image written by jim zub with art by steve cummings uh zach is very very knowledgeable about japanese folklore and culture and um his book uh, yore which is about uh, japanese ghosts uh is out on sale for you to purchase which i encourage you to do um i know i am so uh yeah we get into it about uh, folklore japan uh comics uh, just all manner of things uh, he's great to talk to and uh, i absolutely adore this episode so without further ado please to enjoy zach davison And you can call me Sam, that's a... Alright, I never know which one, I was looking at your name, like, well... Oh yeah, no, it's... I did Samantha, so... <laughs> no, it's, I, I mean, yeah, I, I always appreciate that, and it's like, I've had people who just, like, jump into calling me every nickname they can think of, so... Hey, Sammy! <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> oh, that's a rough one. Uh, my boss has given to, like, she, she gave, she started calling me this weird nickname, and then I didn't stop it when I needed to, and it's persisted now. Ugh. What about you? Do people have interesting nicknames for you? No, no, I've, you know, I've never had uh, nicknames that stuck. People have tried every now and then, but they just never work out. Oh, yeah. Zach is just kind of unnicknameable, you know? Oh, now that's a challenge. <laughs> See, but it never sticks, so, you know, people have tried, tried and failed. <laughs> You're like, I've presented a contest. Whoever can make a nickname stick shall win this golden trinket. I don't know. <laughs> Some kind of fairy tale aspect to it. It always there works. Um, do you need to get a drink or do anything no. before we start? I'm all set. I'm ready. Awesome. Well, we are recording. Excellent. Right. Casting some pods. Um, we're recording right now. So, uh, welcome to That Girl with the Curls, Zach Davison. Thank you. It was great to run into you at Rose City Comic Con, and thank you very much for inviting me. Oh, definitely, yeah. Uh, basically, uh, I came across your, your work in the back matter of Wayward, and uh, I I previously talked to Jim Zub about it as well, so it, it seems only fitting that I bring in the, the man with all the knowledge about Japan. <laughs> well, 
Well, I mean, I'm not the only one. I mean, Steve lives in Japan, and he, you know, he brings his own considerable knowledge to it. And Jim is no slouch to Japan as well, having worked at Udon. So very true. You know, All right, pretty, fine. I'm sorry. But now we've, I, we've got pretty solid credentials on the whole team, which, which I think is good, and I think is in favor of the comic. I mean, it it really lends to the fact that it's an authentic comic. I think um, I was really when I when I signed on, I was really um, I was really what's the word that I'm looking for? I don't know. I was really nervous of it, of it smacking of Orientalism, you know? Um, no. And, and that's a, that's a very real fear. I think that that's, that's totally founded because it's not, I mean, as much as I love comic books and, and Western media and everything in general, uh, cause that's what I was raised on. Uh, it, we do have this tendency sometimes to think that we are doing right by a culture when in fact we're just kind of like, I guess putting that Western lens on it to the point where it's not even really what it originally set out to be. Sure. And I mean, more common than that, like what I talked about in my introduction to the first wayward trade is the whole concept of Japan as decoration is that mm-hmm. a lot of comic books essentially take the veneer of Japan and they, they tell a standard Western story, right? They just want, they want the facade, but yeah. they don't want anything else. Exactly. It's like, it's so beautiful and everything, but I want to tell this type of story. It's like, yeah, but that type of story is not from there. <laughs> Why don't you just tell a regular Western story? <laughs> um, although I, I heard that there was a, I think they did a version of The Magnificent Seven. No, no, it was Unforgiven. It was a Japanese director did Unforgiven uh, through the lens of, of, uh, of, of Japanese history. They did, yeah. And yeah. That's that's pretty common, actually. The Western and the samurai genre have um, have walked hand in hand essentially from their beginning. I mean, you'll see them constantly remaking each other. The most famous one, obviously, is Seven Samurai, which mm-hmm. actually was was my introduction to Japan. Actually, my mother took me to see Seven Samurai when I was when I was really little. I was like eight years old. She oh, took wow. me to some yeah art house theater to watch this three and a half hour subtitled black and white movie, which sounds a little <laughs> crazy, <laughs> but I just loved it i absolutely loved it so much i fell completely in love with 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 everything from that moment and she actually lured me in because i was a fan of the film magnificent seven of course. like hey this is the the samurai version of magnificent seven so that was my hook in well, no that's amazing like yeah because uh my mom introduced me to the magnificent seven and then as i got older you know it's, i think it was in college before i actually saw the kurosawa movie um, but it's, I mean, that's impressive as an eight-year-old to sit through a movie like that and be like, yep, that's that's for me now. <laughs> oh, yeah, I was enraptured. I, I remember it was the first time I'd really ever encountered, I think, a foreign language, and I was just so, I was so confused as to, like, how, how did things work in their head? Like, I just didn't quite get it. I'm like, because I know when I thought in my head, I thought in English, and it was such a strange concept to wrap my head around to think that somebody could, that what was coming out of their mouths actually made sense to them, and I was just completely fascinated by it. And that's really why I started studying Japanese languages, thanks to that movie. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, that's... I, I, I love stories like that, too, because it's always... Um, sometimes it's not always a moment, but sometimes it, it, it just really hits you, like, this is what I want to do. Uh, oh, yeah. This is what I'm interested in. What you know, I've always had a love of history, but could, I couldn't honestly tell you where it started. Um, it just always feels like it's been there. And and so to have, like, a, an origin point to be kind of like, hey, there it is. <laughs> oh, totally. And, you know, it's completely embarrassing, too, because, like, you look at, like, my, my third grade class picture, and I'm wearing this ludicrous T-shirt that says, like, Japan written across it <laughs> with, with the big 
rising sunburst and everything, and like this was a long time ago, right? We're talking like in 1980. <laughs> ridiculous and it's it's you know it's embarrassing when i look at those old pictures but i'm like i guess you know there it was did you find any um uh like minds who were who were into the same things you were as a kid oh absolutely not i mean at (laughs) the time during the 80s japan was was just not on anyone's radar i mean it's not like it is now not at all Mm -hmm. uh so after seeing uh, uh you know kurosawa uh, did you, did your parents, like, encourage you to seek out, like, more Japanese-oriented movies, television shows, anything like that, or was it kind of like you just had it and were kind of exploring it on your own? Yeah, I mean, that's really what it was. I mean, I don't think that, I mean, there was certainly no discouragement or anything. It mm-hmm. was just like, you know, like, my mother that took me to the movie wasn't really the type of person that then, like, take me to more movies and follow up on it. We were all pretty independent and allowed to do whatever we wanted, mm-hmm. um, but it was it was really hard to follow up on that sort of interest too because the material just wasn't there. I mean, you you didn't go to the video store because um, I'm really old. But there were actually <laughs> such things as video stores back then. That was before the advent of home video. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, <laughs> not to date you or anything, but yeah, not to date me or anything. But back in the caveman days, um, before <laughs> you had access to to any media that you ever wanted, you were really at the mercy of what was available. So. So you were just drawing samurai stories on walls and calling them, like, cave paintings and whatnot. It's like, no, no, you don't understand. Here's the shogun. Uh, so, uh, yeah, no, when, when I was growing up, I mean, I had the I had the video stores, and so I got a lot. I, I got anime. I had a lot of Saturday morning anime to, oh, yeah. to sift through yeah. that. Uh, I, had, I had smatterings of that, like, and it was really weird, and I don't really know how this stuff works. Like, I don't know who was responsible for making these decisions, but for some reason, the movie Galaxy Express 999 ran as a double feature with the Robin Williams film Popeye. So like that, yeah, that was the first anime that I ever saw in my life was Matsumoto Leiji's like really heavy space opera that someone thought would make a fitting double feature um, for Popeye. And I, once again, just loved it, you know, when I went and saw it. It was, it was different. It was all dubbed in English. I didn't even know it was Japanese, actually, because you know, it wasn't a big deal. They would they would redub these cartoons and then they would package them and sell them as if they were American um, animation. You know, the Japanese portion of it was not really was not really a selling point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, uh, I just I just like that kind of juxtaposition of an anime next to a Robert Altman movie. Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it just makes me happy. Well, I still I still dearly love both films. So, do you play them back to back now, like just for the good oh, old yeah, days? For the good old days, right? <laughs> Like, if you ever, I don't know, do you have children at all, or? No, no, I don't. Well, if you ever have kids, you can just do that, be like, when I was your age, (laughs) this was what I saw. Uh, Yeah, no, uh, it was a, I had a question in my head, and then I lost it. I apologize, I'm kind of, like, rusty at this again, I took a a little bit of a break, so. (laughs) You're my my first guest back. (laughs) I tend to get pretty chatty on these things, so, um. Just read me in if I wander too far off. Topic. Oh, not, you can never wander too far away. Uh, so with uh, with you know trying to find all the you know, trying to consume this stuff you know, for this thing that you love now, um, did it just end up you going to when you went to Japan eventually? Was that just kind of the culmination of all of this? Not really. I mean, it was it was an odd thing. Cause like I I was interested, but as I said, it was almost impossible to do any sort of actual study. Like my first time attempting to actually firm 
formally learn Japanese. I took a class in junior high, but it was canceled because there was only two people that signed up for it. Oh, no. Yeah. And so, you know, I sort of waned. My interest in Japan waned considerably over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I did other, I did other things. Um, but I had um, I'd lived in Scotland for a year and really, really loved the experience. And so I was at this sort of juncture in my life where I wanted to do something interested and I was really interested in living overseas again mm-hmm. and I found on college campus this thing called the JET program which gave you the opportunity to go live in Japan and they give you like a work visa for a year well mm. they didn't give it to you I darn it I mean, it was pretty tough to get into <laughs> just but, hand um, them out like candy just hand them out. but I thought that that sort of re-sparked my old interest in Japan I was like oh yeah you know I re- used to really be interested in this country and here's this opportunity and probably my best opportunity to actually get in and really study the language so I got hooked up on jet and I originally intended to go over there for one year and I came back seven years later which oh wow which happens so it's I I I can imagine that happening uh especially if you have that kind of interest and especially when it's re-sparked I feel like that that can just kind of make you go like well, why not just stay here longer? I mean, what's really you know waiting for you anywhere else except here? Totally, and there was always more to do. I mean, there was just always more. And even after seven years, there's just tons and tons of stuff I wish I could have done. I just didn't have the time for, you know. And I threw myself pretty seriously into studying, and that's I got my master's degree in Hiroshima. Um, oh wow! I school in Hiroshima when I was over there, and that that actually was really my first serious study of, of Japanese folklore, actually. Um, I did my. I wrote my master's thesis on on yure on Japanese ghosts, mm-hmm. which is what became my book on Japanese ghosts. I sort of trans translated my dull, dry master's thesis <laughs> into a, a more entertaining version of the same thing. If only we could all do that with our master's thesis. <laughs> um, and and yeah. So what what sparked the interest in in Japanese folklore? Well, folklore. Uh, you know, like you had said, it's just one of those things. I've just always been interested in folklore. Like, I don't have any shining origin story for that. That's just something I was born with. That I don't really know where it comes from. Like, always from when I was a kid. Like, I was super interested in um, the Loch Ness monster and like Bigfoot because I live in the Pacific Northwest. Yes. I used to watch this TV show called In Search of. That oh was, yeah, yeah. Yeah. See, <laughs> I loved that show so much. I've just always been interested in in folklore and weird mystery and when i went to japan it was like it was like jackpot i mean (laughs) totally yeah in the i think it's in the first uh issue of um of wayward you say that you know japan is just rife with with monsters and folklore and everything it's just you can't spit without hitting something that probably has a spirit attached to it or a story or anything like that it it's, it's the most haunted country on earth and the folklore is everywhere like when my mother came over to visit me in japan she was she said she was just blown away she's just like there's there's little there's little gods everywhere it, it permeates the culture and it's not like some sort of cutesy sort of thing you know it's not like decoration it's an active living part of their culture all of this the yokai the 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 yurei right it's not it's not just books it's a living, breathing part of their culture that you can get really deep into. And uh, and so, yeah, I wanted to ask you about that too. So 
the it feels like yeah with japan there's this huge there's these uh, it's these levels of extremes i feel like uh-huh. it's you know it's it's really into like there's a conservativeness to it and then there's this wildness as well which also seems to kind of extend to its folklore like they're really into it and then they're really not into it and uh sometimes they meet in the middle and then separate again um whereas like in america we're so iffy on whether or not we even want our folklore to be real <laughs> like we we kind of go like hey this is interesting but i don't think it's probably there whereas yeah. J- japan has kind of found a way to make the modern and the ancient work in tandem oh yeah i mean it wasn't it certainly wasn't easy i mean there was some pretty severe growing pains um one mm-hmm. of the things that i just wrote about for the most recent issue of wayward my essay is actually uh about the Meiji period attack on yokai, where the government went on an actual campaign to attempt to eradicate yokai and belief in yokai from the Japanese public. They, yeah. yeah, they equated belief in yokai with a mental disorder, and you know they would put people in hospitals if you profess yokai belief, and they went on this very, very concentrated effort to attempt to wipe it out. Uh, I mean, is was it for religious purposes, or was it more like a uh, like trying to get the the people under control in a certain way? It was both, um, and religious purposes and getting people under control pretty much wander hand in hand. I Very found. true. <laughs> <laughs> um, but basically, what it was is Japan had their first contact with the West, and when uh, you know, I don't want to dive too deep into Japanese history. If you if you want to know about it, read the most recent issue of of uh, Wayward, issue 11, because it dies pretty deep into it. But essentially, when Japan had their first contact with the West, they were just completely, um, it was like spaceships landing, right? They were, mm-hmm. The West was so much more technologically advanced, and they had all this science, and they had all this industry, and they were showing up in steamships and cannons while the Japanese people were still running around in human-powered rickshaw and throwing spears at people. Mm-hmm. And the leaders of the Japan were just very ashamed of how backwards they were. Oh, okay. Yeah, and they just knew they needed to play catch-up. And one of the things they needed to play catch-up was to forge the Japanese people into a single nation and to eliminate um, this sort of, like, village mentality that had existed in there where every village had its own belief systems. They wanted to unify them into a single belief of emperor worship. Um, So that that served a very political purpose and control purpose of trying to wipe out the yokai. So so Westernization did a good thing for japan i don't know like becoming a you know trying to create that nation state and then but at the expense of a cultural tradition that seems to didn't wasn't really doing anything wrong for them at that point no and i mean good or bad it's not really for me to judge it's Mm -hmm. history i mean the same thing is what led to world war ii and the military industrial complex of japan so you know i don't think there's a lot of people that would call that good but (laughs) Like not not as many opinions on that in the positive, I probably. <laughs> no, but to be honest, without that, I have no doubt that they would have been conquered and you know been made essentially into a colony of one of the Western powers. So mm-hmm. we probably wouldn't even have Japan on the map except for old maps. It's like remember where we used to run that opium through? Yeah, right there. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um. So w- with your time in Japan, um, I mean, what what is that? that like from the experience of a Westerner living in in a country that, you know, still maintains a lot of its, like, spiritual connections and is just wholly different from yours? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's it's so hard to describe. It's one of those questions that people ask you, like, you know, so what what was Japan like? And it's (laughs) such a strange thing because it's an entire country and a 
sizable chunk of my life, and it's hard to reduce into a soundbite. Like, <laughs> well, lucky you don't have to do it in a soundbite. If you want to no. wax poetic, it's great. <laughs> but there's an old saying for um, for the foreign residents in Japan, which is, um, come to Japan for a day, write a book. Come to Japan for a week, write an article. Come to Japan for a year, write nothing. <laughs> basically when you first get there it's all so crazy right it's Mm -hmm. all so strange it's all so different and you just want to you you feel like you're the first person to ever discover this magical (laughs) country and you want to write all this stuff about it and you want to tell everyone about it and then after a week you're a little bit more used to it and it's not so great anymore and you're like there's not actually that much to write about and eventually it's just life and Mm -hmm. it's no more interesting or strange or weird than anything else i mean i feel as completely as comfortable in japan as i do in the united states and you're just complaining about traffic the whole time you're like god (laughs) i tell people that all the time it's like you know people that have never been to japan have this image of what you know this sort of weird crazy wild country and i'm like no it's a country where people get up they make their coffee they hope they don't miss the train to work they go to work, they gossip about TV shows and celebrities. It is completely normal. Mm-hmm. It's like they're just like us. It's almost like they're people. Yeah. I know, exactly, like, right? Go it's figure. almost like I'm married to one, and she lives in my house right now. So. <laughs> like, I love you, honey. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, did, I, I assume you met your, your wife in Japan. I did, yeah. Did you guys get married there, or did you get married here in the States? Uh, we had our ceremony in Japan, but due to the the immensely complicated visa process mm. of marrying a foreigner we actually had the legal part was here in the united states and uh i mean so you were there studying and uh, and teaching right uh is, is that how you how the two of you met oh no absolutely not i met her in a bar <laughs> Eve, um when i was lonely one night and my feeling sad after a bad love affair and one of my my buddies is like dude come on let's go out to the bar and you know yeah. <laughs> like and that was the story we told totally oh no i've still got the um the half pack of cigarettes that she wrote her phone number on oh she, yeah. you love sick fool you <laughs> i know i'm very sentimental i can't help it oh um, so with your, so with this thesis that you have, uh, the, I, I apologize if, you know, I'll probably butcher any of these words, uh, with, uh, Yurai. <laughs> it sounds silly when you try to pronounce them correctly, right? Like, <laughs> Usually. There was an old Saturday Night Live skit once that just cracked me up because it showed, like, basically a bunch of Americans sitting around ordering Mexican food, and every time, you know, they tried to do the Mexican right, they're like, yeah, can you get me the burrito? You know, <laughs> So. I've I've actually heard that in Mexican restaurants where there was um I was just there uh, having dinner with my family and then suddenly this guy comes in he's like we've got cuatro cuatro <laughs> it's just like wow guy he knows what four is yeah. <laughs> uh, did you ever see the uh, the SNL sket, uh, sket, sket, sketch sketch um, about uh, I think it was the um, the Jap- the Japanese uh, Japanese file like club like these Western kids who are just oh, con- oh my god I, th- I think you would either love it or cringe during the entire thing oh yeah I mean I I deal with that sort of thing all the time I was at Road City Comic Con um, I try my best to be patient but I had someone come up to me and they were telling me about how wrong I was about some of the stuff that I had written about Japan and they were someone that had never been to Japan before but they just wanted to correct me on it and I was just like 
that's yeah. I mean, were they trying to correct you based on your book or based on the back matter of Wayward? Based on some of the stuff that I'd written in Wayward, and you know, some of the <laughs> some of the stuff I was saying. And, you know, I don't know. I try my best to be patient, but. It's it's an odd thing because uh, you don't want to discourage the love for the thing because it's like, hey, at least you were reading Wayward and you love Japan. But then it's like there's the academic part of you that kind of takes over and goes like, but I do know more about this than I know. you. I can't. Oh, that's that's rough. I feel for you on that one. <laughs> uh, I I studied the American Revolution. Uh, in college, and oh, yeah. and that whole era up to about the ratification of the Constitution is kind of my specialty. So when I get when people are trying to correct me on that kind of stuff, it's like, yeah, I yeah, no, <laughs> like you're gonna have to just lay down on that, bud. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Anytime anyone walks up to me, they're like, in Japan, oh, this, Lord. and I just want like, oh, whatever you say after that is gonna be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> oh. But that fence never sentence almost never ends well. Mm, yeah, and and that is an interesting aspect of Western culture as well, where we we have this regular desire to fall in love with another culture, and then just you know, it's like we we kind of get it, but then we really get it wrong. Like mm-hmm. and 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 I don't mean that in a mean way. It's just that there's you know it's like the skit in SNL. There's just this. A way that we try to appropriate it, but then don't understand the actual meaning behind it at times. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Which has to be equally as frustrating for the people actually within the culture who are just like, just stop, please stop. <laughs> like, I appreciate it, but no. But no. But... Yeah. <laughs> uh, but with uh, with Yore, uh, did, what was the, the fascination with um, Japanese ghosts then? Uh, because you seem to you seem to have like focused a lot in the in the much more supernatural um, yeah, area. So that really, I mean, that really came, I think, from the sort of typical place of a lot of people where you know I got into watching some of the the horror films like Ring and uh, and Juon and things like that during mm-hmm. the sort of um, the little boom that happened. And I remembered, like, because I had seen the old Edo period ghosts, you know, the old Edo period Yurei prints, mm-hmm. and especially, like, the prints of, like, of Oiwa from Yotsuya Kaiden and things like that. And it was so clear that there must be, that there was some connection there, right? That mm-hmm. Yamamura Sarako and Oiwa were eventually, essentially the same monster, right? I mean, the, but... I couldn't find that connection. No one had really ever written anything about it in English as much as I, I looked it up because I just was really curious. I really wanted to know. So I started like doing my own exploration mm-hmm. and that led to, you know, I had to learn more Japanese because mm-hmm. I realized that the only way to figure out the answer there was to learn Japanese because it just wasn't written in English. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was just really how my exploration started was trying to find that thread, you know, that connected this person here to this person here, you know, why did this monster 200, probably like 250 years apart, look identical to each other? And and what what did you discover? Yeah, I mean, I don't want to spoil the book uh, for anybody. Yeah, I mean, that's the book. It's just that's it's the, the concept of yurei is very deep in Japanese culture. And a lot like you were talking about having an origin story is there is actually an origin. There is a single point in time of where that ghost came from. And mm-hmm. it's the story of this artist named Maruyama Okyo, who, you know, to not delve too deeply in the story, but at the time that he was around, he was incredibly, 
incredibly famous, incredibly well-respected painter, and he was most famous for the fact that he was an absolute realist. That mm-hmm. uh, he refused to paint anything that he did not see. That's what he said. It was this religious devotion of him. He felt that that everything that you ever needed was within the living world, and you didn't need to um, to fantasize anything as a painter. You should only oh, wow. paint what you see. <laughs> That's and, uh, very rigid. <laughs> it is. It is very rigid. You know, it was his religious devotion. He felt that like that like Buddha had created the world with everything mankind needed right in front of them, and so you could learn more from studying nature than you could learn fantasizing about different realms. Um, <laughs> And so one night he actually had this his, this lover named Oyuki that was a geisha at the Tominaga Geisha House, and she had um, she had died very young, and he missed her very much. And so one night he woke from his from his sleep, and the ghost of of Oyuki was was hovering over his bed, just sort of looking at him. And um, you know he he just wasn't quite sure if it was a dream or not because she she just looked at him for a little bit and disappeared. But what he did was he got from his bed and he grabbed a roll of silk and he painted her. Oh, so wow. he painted the ghost of Oyuki. And because he was Mariyama Okyo and because he had this reputation and he posted up this picture, he's like, this, I have painted a ghost, an actual ghost, you know, painted from life, just like everything that I paint comes from life. And so that has became the image of a ghost ever since then. Oh, wow. Yubere. So it, it have, has that carried over not just into Japan but into other aspects of, um, of Asian culture as well? Or is, or is this just kind of typical of Japan? It's, it, it is typical of Japan. I mean, some of the other, especially with modern horror, I mean, there, there was large periods of isolation where you didn't have as much mass media. But now with mass media, there's obviously more blending. But even still, the, um, the yurei, like that solid image, it's so deep within Japanese culture that it really doesn't ever change, right? The mm-hmm. one that comes on screen is still very much the same ghost that, that Mariyama Okyo drew because that is what a ghost looks like. And, mm-hmm. you know, like, my wife will always talk about that. And it's really kind of interesting because they just they just wrote this great article on tofugu.com, which is a website that I like quite a bit, about why Japanese people don't really like zombie movies, right? Like, why mm-hmm. are they not scared of zombies um, the way Americans are? Mm-hmm. And the answer, like, they love ghosts, but they just don't find zombies very scary. And the answer is, is because to a Japanese person, ghosts are real, uh, where zombies aren't. That That's really interesting. Yeah. Like, uh, on a cultural level, because, yeah, the... I, every once in a while, like, I'll, I'll actually watch the History Channel, and they'll have maybe an interesting documentary or something like that. <laughs> And, um, and one of them was actually about kind of like the different type of monsters, you know, especially with Halloween and everything being that that stuff just keeps playing all the time. And, you know, what comes in vogue, like zombies have, have really been lasting a lot, you know, a lot longer than I, I thought that they would. Um, but, you know, like vampires are representative of one thing, zombies. I mean, but it's always the, a metaphor. Uh, oh, yeah, right. I mean, there's the there's whole idea that that each generation creates its own monsters because mm-hmm. you you want something very tailored to your particular fears and society generates certain fears and there's you know tons of books about there about what zombies mean right I mean, oh yeah, you don't yeah. Need to tell you you can just go pick them up um, <laughs> let's watch some romero and talk about consumerism <laughs> exactly exactly <laughs> Uh, which is why the persistence of yure, which is one of the things that I love about it so much in Japan, is that it's, it's very persistent. It's not at all based on time. You know, it yeah. doesn't matter what era it is. It's the same thing. And, you know, 
as like I said, as my wife said, it's because because they're real, right? Yeah. That's a real thing that you're scared of. That they're not made up. They're not based on anything. They're just real. And she, you know, she'll say that too. She's like, you know, like American ghost movies are clearly you're not doing them right because you have like you have like Ghostbusters and you have like you know all <laughs> other things and you know American ghosts can essentially be anything. They're completely amorphous. They have no set design, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we uh, we're we're very good at uh, taking whatever's in vogue and trying to make it fit uh, whatever cultural scares we have currently, um, or you know, anticipate or something like that. But that's that's really uh, that's really almost special, you know, in a way that their their ghosts are you know are, the the yurei are, are it, she's consistent. Um, oh, yeah. Like she, she. I mean, has she ever varied at all? Like anyone uh, aside from the, you know, the the pale woman with the black hair, has she ever varied at all? I mean, slightly, you know. I mean, really slightly, but that's that essential template has never really changed. See, yeah. Again, that's just really amazing. Like, and the fact that it's been like, you know, how many how many millennia has that been? Uh, well, not quite millennia. Oh, okay. Yeah, no period, you know, I mean, yeah, written Japanese history doesn't actually go all back, all back that far, so... Uh, all right, I'm gonna, I'm showing my Western, uh, no roots problem. here. Uh, well, how far back to, is, is the Meiji period? Uh, it's probably, so it's from the, um, it started in 1603. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, so we're looking at a few centuries here of, uh, yeah. of consistent, uh, ghost stories, uh, with consistent this... Ghost stories. Yeah, and prior to that, you know, prior to Maoriyama Okyo, like, if you go back into the older ones, um, then they didn't look the same. In fact, the older ghosts looked almost identical to human beings. That was a big part of the story, is that ghosts had, like, there's lots of stories about a wife dying and not really telling her husband, and so she lives and she has kids, and she raises the kid for, you know, like, three years or something, and then she goes to the husband, and she's like, hey, you know, now you're old enough to take care of the kids. The kids are fine. Just so you know, I've been dead for the last three years. Um, oh well, yeah, <laughs> you know, and I'm out of here. <laughs> that's that's uh, that's great, hon. You just that's, you keep going. <laughs> like, yeah. It's almost like the um, the Selkie stories. Uh, oh yeah, no, it's totally yeah, it's totally like that. Yeah, the just kind of like the the hidden uh, supernatural underneath it all, and then suddenly like, hey, by the way, I'm this thing. Gotta go. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> like, oh yeah. And it's still, you know, it's still very much a part of the active living culture, you know, and mm-hmm. that, I think that surprises a lot of people. Like, I don't know if you ever, if you read the article, but um, this guy named Richard Perry wrote this pretty interesting article because he had gone over to Japan after the the typhoon, the, the 2011 typhoon that had killed mm-hmm. all these people. And he was so shocked to find out how very much the ghosts of Japan, you know, the Uede were still relevant and modern. He had... Like, a lot of people assumed that it was quaint folklore, but, like, when he went over there, they had all of these emergency, you know, shelters set up for typhoon victims, you know, there's, like, here's food, you know, here's medicine, here's, you know, water if you need it, and then here is an exorcism tent, just in case you're being haunted by anyone that died. Yeah, absolutely. It was part of of the care package, because Mm -hmm. it's absolutely real. Yeah, wow. That is, that is fascinating. Uh, I mean... Yeah, I don't even know how to react to that. That's just so cool, actually. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. Um, and and it's and I find it you know it's weird from my perspective to even say like that's so cool when it's just it's just their culture. It's exactly. Yeah, you, know, you want to find some way to be like I acknowledge this. It's like wow, 
that's cool. Like, there's just no yeah. words for it. Like, yeah, and it is. It's just their culture, and it's just a different take on the culture. And it's like, it's like you know, like bringing my wife over to America made me suddenly aware of a lot of things that I had previously taken for granted or not even thought about. I mean, things that you do at like Christmas or things that like you do uh, like all of our sort of like rituals that are bound into the culture. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, you know, we don't we don't often think about those until someone is kind of like, oh, you do that. It's like, I do? Oh, I do. Yeah. <laughs> um, or you're just more conscious of it yourself. Yeah, or, or suddenly someone that has no, you know, like that's one of the things I think that a foreigner is able to bring to a culture. You know, I mean, some people are wary as like, you know, what's an American doing studying Japanese ghosts? And I think it's because as an outsider, you get to ask the question, why? Mm-hmm. And when you live inside of the culture, you don't really ask that question, why, as much, you know? Mm-hmm. No, and definitely. I, yeah, I get confronted by that from my wife. Like, she'll be like, why do you eat candy corn at, at Halloween? I'm like, you know what? I have no idea. <laughs> I don't know either, and it's actually a disgusting habit. <laughs> I know, it's disgusting, but it's, it's that's what it is. And sometimes <laughs> it just takes an outsider to look at you and say, why? And why is never a question that I had considered asking about a lot of my own culture. I, I, I remember distinctly asking that question about Easter at times because the uh, mixing of the pagan and the uh, Christian just never <laughs> made sense to me. Oh, it's completely bonkers. I mean, like Christmas, like let's drag a tree inside of our house, you know? It's, it seems like the most normal thing in the world because it's what you always do. Exactly. You know, let's go get a gourd and hollow it and cut a little face in it and put a candle in it. <laughs> It's like, you know, because we did that last year, we have to keep doing it. It's like, but why? Stop asking me questions. It's not important right now. Um, So how did you then uh, get involved in doing, I guess, um, you know, becoming a translator and then, I guess, getting into the world of comics? I've always been a huge comics fan. I mean, comics are just part of my dna i mean i owned a comic book store in the 90s oh you did oh yeah absolutely i'm super 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 into comics i've got a huge comic book collection i've got i've got an x-men number one signed by stan lee i mean oh you're an old school collector oh totally yeah i comic hardcore you know i comic hardcore that might be my favorite saying anyone said (laughs) at this point um where where did you have the uh, comic book store in uh, in Spokane, Washington. That's oh, where, uh, the lovely little Spokane. <laughs> oh yes, I can tell lovely stories of Spokane, but but that's a whole different thing. Okay. Um, but when I came back from Japan, so one of the things when I was over in Japan, I you know because I, I always liked Japanese comics as well, and um, obviously learning Japanese opened up a lot more because I didn't really realize to what extent Japanese comics are a curated collection here in the West. Mm-hmm. We only get what companies feel is sellable um and what's sellable is is a very limited range right it's mm-hmm. like basically we get drops from the ocean i mean japan yeah. is, is comic book paradise you know there's there's so many more japanese comics than there are american comics and it's such an infinite variety of styles i mm-hmm. mean it's just crazy it blew me away and i really fell in love with this particular comics of this guy named shigeru mizuki and he had absolutely no English translation. I mean, his stuff was just, I just thought it was the most bizarre, brilliant, wonderful thing that I think I'd ever seen. Mm -hmm. Um, I just gathered and collected as much of it as I could. And when I 
like actually one one drunken night at my friend's bar in Osaka. I mean, my wife was there too, and I just like I made this this almost holy vow. I'm like, I shall be the one to bring Shigeru Mizuki's works to America. I swear it, you know. <laughs> I did. I stood up on a chair and I shouted it out and made a fool of myself. But when I got back to the United States, I really wanted to make good on this. I really thought that that this really wonderful comic artist being so completely unknown in the West was quite a shame and a huge gap in comic book knowledge. So I shopped him around for years. I did all these sample translations and I sent him to all these companies I could do. And the general answer was, you know, it's like, no, it's not marketable. If it's not Sailor Moon or Dragon Ball Z, America won't go for it. You know, they only like this because, well, the idea of manga had become so entrenched in American culture, right? And mm-hmm. they, things that didn't match that art style, uh, were were rejected as being inauthentic, even though that art style was actually quite a limited slice of what was available in Japan. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, finally, um, one of the companies that I had actually not even considered, I just they just weren't even on my radar because, to my you know detriment, I didn't think of them as a manga company, and I was trying to focus on these manga companies, which was stupid in and of itself. But <laughs> out of Canada, suddenly put out a Mizuki Shigeru volume and it was just like boom out there after I'd been trying for years to shop him around then boom oh, they just no. dropped it. Yeah. And I was like, oh my God, I can't believe it. Um, did they and, did they do well on the translation? Yeah, I mean they they did good, but I you know, and I but I wrote the I wrote them this impassioned letter. I had absolutely no contacts over there. I knew nothing of them. I just went onto their website and I found the contact us button. You know, just like you would do anywhere. And I wrote them this impassioned letter, you know, declaring, you know, like, Shigeru Mizuki, I'm, I'm like his greatest fan. I realize you already have a translator, but if I could in any way participate, you know, maybe write a little article or whatever it is, you know. Um, and little did I know that Drawn and Quarterly is such a small company that the Contact Us button actually went to the president of the company. <laughs> so Chris Olivers wrote me back and he's like, wow, you know, you've really impressed me with your passion. And I'm like, here, let me just do, I did like a sample, um, fairly extreme when I think about it, but I did a hundred page sample translation. And I'm oh, like, wow. Yeah, here's what I can do. Um, you know, compare this to whatever it is you like. And if you like it, then, you know, let me know. And they liked it enough that they hired me to translate um, Showai History of Japan. Mm-hmm. Which, wow, if you ever want to find out what it like is like to jump into the deep end of the ocean, I mean, that was a massive comic to take on as my first ever comic translation. But, oh, my. Yeah. Uh, I mean, what what was that experience like for you? I mean, when you're, like you said, you just were dropped into the middle of the ocean, basically, on this. Like, something you've, I mean, it's it's not like you extensively did translation. It's not like you couldn't. But yeah, yeah, and I, you know, and I'd, I'd always wanted to do manga, so I'd actually like I'd practiced doing a lot of manga translation. Um, mm-hmm. But even like the stuff I'd practiced on was just none of it was nearly as big. And honestly, I wouldn't have made it without my wife. I mean, she was really my co-translator, especially on that first volume, because mm-hmm. it was heavy and all of this like military language and all this political stuff that was just out of my realm, and I had to had to pick up the pace, you know. Yeah. Um... What uh, I mean, when when you are doing that kind of translation, what what becomes the biggest hurdle for you? Uh, is it is it the just trying to find the right words or the context? Well, when I do it now, obviously, you know, I've got a lot more experience under my belt, and I think the biggest hurdle is really trying to find the voice and tone of the comic. You mm-hmm. know, because each each comic has its own unique 
voice, each person that it's written in. And so I really, like, I struggle to, to get my rhythm down, the rhythm of the language that I'm going to use. Like, like currently I'm translating uh, Matsumoto Leiji's comic, which is which is really lovely because it's really full circle. I mean, he's the guy that did Galaxy Express 999 that got really hooked on this. <laughs> there we go. And now I've grown up to translate his, you know, translate his comics, so it's just quite wonderful. Mm-hmm. But his, his just, his whole feeling is so different than, Mizugi Shigeru's, and so I have to, you know, I have to incorporate that. I have to bring that feeling over, because when you do a translation, it's not, it's not really about the words. Really, there's Japanese and English are so disparate from each other that, as most translators know, you're essentially writing a new script to go along with the existing pictures. Is what you're doing. Okay. And so you, it's more important to capture the feeling and the tone of that than it is to worry too much about the individual words. Do you do you ever get the opportunity to actually talk to the authors of the of the manga that you're translating? No, absolutely not. No, <laughs> no. is that by choice or no? No, it's by their choice. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's it's one of the things that every single manga translator would love to be able to talk to because we're all fans, right? Nobody does this that's not a diehard fan, mm-hmm. um, and we would all love the opportunity to speak with the person that wrote the comic, but. You go through, you know, they have agents and they have publishers and it's all very, very by the book. It's all very, very formal. So, I mean, I've met, I met Mizugi Shigeru once in Japan, but this was long before I ever started actually translating or doing anything official with his work. So I went to this, um, this world yokai conference in Kyoto where I got to, I got to meet him for, for a brief little time, um, but ever since then, like when I actually started translating Showa, like I wrote him a letter that I passed over, that was passed over to him. But mm-hmm. I haven't read any contact with him. Okay, <laughs> I'd love to. It would be great. But... You're like, please, please, can I talk to you? <laughs> we don't need another translator fan wanting to get. You know? <laughs> well, I can just imagine that you know a lot of manga fans are just a bunch of translators going like, oh my god, I'm such a fan. We all are. I mean, we are all fans, right? hundred mm-hmm. percent of us that do this are super fans which is why we do it and i think and i think that's that's really impressive too because you have you have to be to want to uh translate those words like and and create a new story essentially or or a similar story to what's already been crafted to and do right by their work essentially Mm -hmm. oh yeah absolutely yeah um so I wanted to talk to you about the Western comics for, for a little bit first. Totally, yeah. Um, since you were uh, a seller of comics and a fan of, of, of the old school stuff. Uh, yeah, no, it was. I mean, I'm still a comic super fan. I mean, I oh, read, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that never goes away. Uh, every, every week, just like everyone else, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what what were the books that you, you read uh, for the most part? Uh, I mean, growing up, I read you know the standard marvel dc there wasn't there wasn't a lot there mm-hmm. until later on you know i started to dive into to some of the like dark horse and you know one of the comics that actually made a really big impression on me was this comic grendel by by matt wagner that came out from a company called comico mm-hmm. and the first arc that i read of of grendel also sparked some of this more japanese love because they fought against a, a bakeneko um, which i just had no cultural idea of what that was and I didn't even really realize what it was until I read reread it later as an adult I'm like wow that was a yokai comic essentially and I didn't even know it oh, wow. yeah and then um like my my 
you know, my favorite, I think my all-time favorite has got to be Mike Mignola. I mean, oh, his, yeah. his stuff with Hellboy is just, it's just immense, you know, because it, it ties in all the stuff that I love with folklore and his, you know, his art style and everything else. Mm-hmm. I'm, you know, I'm firmly convinced that Mike Mignola is the guy that, you know, he's our modern Poe and Lovecraft. He's the guy that they're going to be studying 200 years from now in college. And, oh, Lord, yeah. Yeah. Um, I have uh, one of his, uh, like, short novellas, uh, Father Gaetano's Puppet Catechism. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I've got that, yeah. Oh, I, I met, yeah, because he, he was at Emerald City, I think, last year. Or, the, yeah. or this year, something like that. And I brought that up to, I read it just before uh, Emerald City and just talked to him about, like, childhood toys that scare the crap out of us. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> the, the puppet's not, so, I mean, it, it's creepy enough. Like, I, I'm all for a creepy story. I'm not so much a big, like, jump scare person. Um, but I was talking to him about the, um, I, I hate the, uh, the symbol monkey. Oh, yeah. That thing scares the crap out of me. And yes, it should, right? It, That's all it exists for. It you know, really should. <laughs> when we were kids, my um, my grandparents, I think it was my grandparents, they bought us a ventriloquist dummy. Oh. And I'm like, who, who does that? <laughs> I, I, the, my, my grandmother had bought me a porcelain doll when I was young. Oh, man, porcelain yeah. dolls are like the creepiest of dolls. Right? Like, you just look at them and, and, and there's that weird trick of the light where if you, you stare oh. at something long enough, it almost looks like they're moving. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's like, as a kid, I could not, I had to turn the doll around. Uh huh. So oh, yeah. No, we did like this, this ventriloquist dummy, Jerry Mahoney. Like we had to put him in the closet, and then it was worse because we knew he was in the closet. And, you know, he was just the boogeyman of our childhood. Like, <laughs> a, a couple years ago, I found one at like at this antique store. There was Jerry Mahoney there, and I just took a little picture of it and I emailed it to my brother. And I'm like, Jerry is still watching. <laughs> it's kind of like the oh, yeah. that clown doll in Poltergeist. Oh yeah, absolutely. Ugh, yeah. It's just yeah. any time dolls are used as as that kind of like central central figure of the haunting, it's just kind of like no, no, can't do, won't do. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting to get on the subject of dolls because that's actually also a really big thing in Japanese folklore. Like they believe that um, that dolls are imbued with the life essence of people that love them, and so you're not allowed to um, you're not allowed to throw away dolls. They actually have these doll burning ceremonies where you um, you take them to shrines and have them cremated because oh wow yeah, throwing a doll in the in the garbage is considered to be a very bad thing. So do people? I mean, it, does that then coincide with like the gifting of dolls? Like, do children get a lot of dolls, or is this kind of like a thing we have to think about it now? Like, well, we don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> they, I mean, they do get dolls, but it, you know, it's it's just it's just a matter of respect of when you're done with it. You know, mm-hmm. it's like this is a toy that I've treasured, and I put a little bit of my life into it, and I'm not just going to bag it up and toss it out in the trash. Okay, so it's not so much a Toy Story situation. <laughs> well, actually, Toy Story actually kind of proves that point. Then they have a life of their own, and <laughs> they do. And but it, but it also it's that life that if it's not properly respected, it can come back to get you like another. You know, another thing my wife is just like, like, she will not buy used dolls. She would never, she's like, I can't believe people go into like, you know, like a Goodwill or something and buy these used dolls. She's like, that is terrifying because mm-hmm. they have the life essence from their old owner. And I'm like, okay. Well, I, I, I don't know if you've ever seen that this at a Goodwill, but it's the like bag of doll parts kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, 
<laughs> that I find, find creepier than anything else. It's just right? like totally. serial killers lunch is what that is. Oh my god! It's like I I get I can I can understand buying a used doll in its entirety, like a whole doll. Yeah. But the dismantled parts of a doll oh, seems fuck. to be a bit egregious. Yeah, like, it's so creepy. It's so really creepy. is. Uh, <laughs> um. So uh, with a. Let's see, where was it going? Oh, oh. So, like in American comics. I mean, you know, like I love Mignola. I love like, like Harold County is another really good one. That's oh, come yeah, yeah. The, um, I have a deep love for Stan Sakai's Usagi Ojimbo, and I always will. I think it's, it's one of the best made continuing comics that's ever existed. That thing is just, is just incredible, you know? See, I, I was talking to um, uh, one of the guys at Dark Horse about that because I've I've only heard of, uh, of uh, Usagi Ojimbo from the turtles from the teenage mutants of turtles uh so i mean do you have a recommendation point for someone if they're starting off um with with a series like that like where should it just be like from from page one and just go from page one i mean it's this epic i mean i guess you can grab it from the middle and i think that um i think stan would probably interrupt me there for saying you have to start in page one because he spends a lot of effort making sure that you can start from almost anywhere okay but I like reading it as a continuing story. And um, Fantagraphics, actually, I just found out about this yesterday, which makes me really excited. They just are re-releasing um, the first seven volumes as this uh, bound collector's edition. So I'm like, ooh, I ooh. want that. I know what I want for Christmas. <laughs> like, I want that. Yeah. <laughs> it's like uh, if you told me a Kirby uh, omnibus was coming out, I'd be like, yes. And you're like, yes. <laughs> Birthday, Christmas, any type of you know weird holiday, just say it's for me. <laughs> right. <laughs> Uh, and, and then, like, you know, just, uh, like, I don't know if you know the whole path to how I got onto Wayward, but that's, I mean, that's always an interesting story in itself as well, but, mm-hmm. um, a friend, someone I became friends with, Brandon Seffert, who does, uh, he did the comic Witch Doctor from Image, and he does, um, does a lot of other cool stuff, we got to be friends through the convention and just a mutual love of folklore, mm-hmm. and we had, um, you know, we'd spent some time, you know, just chatting on the phone and emails and stuff and you know we kind of tried to work on a couple different projects together that so far have never really never really panned out which was sad because i thought that they were super cool but (laughs) you know there's always hope for the future um but jim zob talked to brandon one time at a convention he's like oh i'm doing this new supernatural comic book and brandon's like oh you have to meet my friend zach (laughs) did he say it just like that yeah he did he said it just like that so so Jim, like, Brandon put us two in contact, and Jim sent me this, you know, this email, and it was just like, hey, I'm doing this new comic, you know, Brandon said you were really into this stuff, so blah, 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 and I honestly, like, I knew Jim only from Skull Kickers. Oh, yeah. I didn't, like, I didn't know his pedigree, I've learned it since then, but I'm just like, oh, you gotta be kidding me, like, you know, comedy D&D dude wants to do a yokai comic, you know, I just... <laughs> It's almost embarrassing because, like, my, my first answer to Jim was so completely terse, right? It was just, like, this one sentence is, like, yeah, whatever, I'll look at what you got. Oh, <laughs> Like, I'm doing him a favor or something. And he sent me over the script, and when I read the script, I was just, like, I was, like, oh, my God, this is amazing. This is perfect. Like, dude and, did his homework. <laughs> yeah. And then I, I wrote him back, and I essentially hired myself onto the onto the series. Um <laughs> And when you when you guys initially talked after after you realized Jim was was for realsies, um, 
was it was it always just you doing essays at the back or was it more like on a, a consultation as well i mean i send over my ideas like i think you know we've we've got a nice working rhythm now and at first you know i i sent him over a lot of like sort of background stuff and ideas and like here's some various monsters that you can use and everything like that but i mean it's really like you know jim and steve are doing the story and they do such a great job they, they you know they've got their own mythology stuff going on like that so you know jim might ask me a question or something or maybe i'll read something and add some advice in or things like that so the consultative aspect is is pretty minor mm-hmm. um well i mean mostly mostly what i do is like i and i get almost complete freedom about what i do with the essays you know jim will just send me a script and i'll come up with an idea and write the essay essentially and every now and then he'll have a little suggestion like hey i'd kind of like to to have an essay about this um one of the roles that the essays play which is which has worked out really nice especially i think having me as doing the ongoing essayist is that as Jim has said, it frees him from having to do exposition text, right? It mm-hmm. frees him from having to have the professor character who walks up and explains everything to the audience. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, because, I mean, you generally have to have the exposition character, right? Well, especially, yeah, in a, a, a in a largely supernatural book that takes place in the modern world, you always need someone who's got a lot of freaking knowledge about everything or else... Right? You spend pages just trying to tell someone about it. I know. You need Giles for for Buffy, right? (laughs) Exactly. Every time. But um, instead of that, we've got me in the back. (laughs) So it doesn't have to interrupt the flow of the story. He's able to tell just a kind of exciting story without having to do those pauses for exposition because he's got me, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, because with the first uh, with the first volume of Wayward, there's a lot more of the kind of like the lane of the foundations of of Japanese culture and their relationship with the supernatural and the different and kind of the the particular monsters that are are prevalent in that first story. Um, is is there kind of this desire to to branch out and do like bigger things? Like, are there any fantastic tales that you haven't told yet that you're kind of like itching to do? That in, in Wayward, yeah. oh, absolutely. I mean, the scope of Wayward is, is pretty huge, but it's also you know kind of secret. So yeah, <laughs> you know, damn. But it's, yeah, it's it's pretty. I mean, the whole series is awesome, and I think that we all feel extremely privileged that we get to tell the story because once again, when Jim first contacted me, he's like, "We have no idea how this series is going to do. You know, it could crash and burn." And we had, uh, like, they had a, an exit point at five issues, right? So mm-hmm. it's like, we got five issues, and if it just tanks, we'll, we'll call it good and finish it there. Um, but if, it, if people like it, then I've got this much, much bigger story to tell. And so issue six was just amazing for us, because it meant that we got to go on to the bigger story. We got to move. Yeah, uh, it, what was really like Im- impressive to me, like what I love about this is the, um, because we spend the whole first volume looking at, at, at Rory and her life, and then, you know, she gets a couple of friends and they, they have a big battle, but then the, the next volume is a lot, it, Rory barely shows up in it. Right, totally, and, right, I know. And that takes in a tremendous amount of confidence in the story and the art and everything to kind of take your main character and lose her for like half the story right? before and getting her back. It's funny too, because none of us, none of us really thought anyone would miss Rory. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and we were, 
we were all, I mean, because Jim had that great idea, you know, he's like, you know, with the third, you know, with the story arc, we're just going to, we're just totally going to ship characters. We'll do this completely different thing and it'll be kind of cool and it'll be unexpected. And I'll be like, you know, I mean, there's, there's a lot of confidence in, in what Jim's doing because I think sometimes, and there's been more than once on the comic where I've been like, God, Jim, I just, I don't think that's a really good idea, you know? <laughs> he's but like, trust it, me, bro, trust me. No, exactly, he's like, no, no, trust me, man, it'll be cool. When it actually comes out and I see people's reaction to it, I'm like, wow, that, you were right, you were right on the nose, and I was completely wrong. And that's happened so often that I just, I stopped even saying it anymore, I'm just like, awesome, dude, go to it, you know? <laughs> you know, that might have a reverse effect where he's like, oh man, he's complimenting me, that means I'm not doing something right. <laughs> Like switching, like, because like Amy O'Hara is actually my favorite character. I I adore her, and mm-hmm. so when um, when we got to focus on her, to me it was just all awesome. I'm like, oh yeah, the, I guess Rory, you know, she's in the book somehow. But come on, we've got Amy. She's clearly the better character, right? I <laughs> <laughs> see. I, I really like Ayane. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, Ayane's awesome too. Something about cat people and just I I think it's just the um, her penchant for swearing like constantly. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It's just something attractive about that. Yeah, yeah, Ayane's great. But I think, you know, and Amy O'Hara is to me because she's the one that I recognize, right? Mm-hmm. She's the most like a Japanese person, you know? Yeah, um, it, it was really interesting to, because with Rory you have the uh, kind of the the of two worlds aspect, whereas with Emmy, it's she's so ingrained in the Japanese culture and then how that affects her when she finds this supernatural power of hers. And that it was, I mean, I think... In place of Rory, Emmy became a very interesting character because you have you have this time with her. She has this connection to Rory in a very small uh, way, but that becomes a bigger deal later on. Um, but just it's that weird, like what's the mystery around her? How does she connect? Like that that kind of stuff is always those are the things that I love about like uh, that kind of switch, you know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah so. And I don't think I don't think you could have started off with Emmy and had the series be as popular. I think mm-hmm. that Rory was a really good bridge character. Do you, uh, and do you think that's just kind of like from a cultural standpoint that we're, we just need someone who's a little bit more like us to kind of ingratiate ourselves into the world first? Oh, absolutely. I mean, why do you think that there's movies like The Last Samurai, right? Mm. I mean, you know, <laughs> it's embarrassing, but also famously true that you need the the point of view character is what they call it. You know, you need, you need to throw the white guy in the middle of the samurai charge or else we're not going to go see the movie. I mean, it's ridiculous, but yeah, it's like, but also true. I know? actually would have, I mean, cause I did enjoy last stamina, salmon, salmon, uh, samurai to an extent, but it does, after a while, you're just like, why can't this just be Ken Watanabe's movie? <laughs> like he's a really good actor. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, have you do you have any recommendations of like really good um, like Japanese movies to to enjoy? I mean, we, we we know that your feelings on Kurosawa and everything, but are there really good like horror movies or just regular Japanese movies in general that you would recommend to somebody who's interested in um, in I guess Jap- Japanese cinema? I don't know. It's tough because my tastes run to the super Japanese movies. Okay. Um, which... <laughs> So, like, there's there's Japanese directors who try to emulate Western directors, Western films. Like, Kurosawa is well-known for being the most Western of Japanese directors, you mm-hmm. know? Um, even, like, when he first came around, people were like, dude, you know, you're just trying to make American movies set in Japan. <laughs> was one of 
the accusations leveled towards Kurosawa. So, like, I really love people like, like, Mizuguchi Kenji did this great film called Ugetsu, which to me is the most beautiful ghost story ever filmed. I watch it every year. Mm-hmm. It's it's just a masterpiece, you know. You can you can get the the Blu-ray from the Criterion Collection. It's lovely, lovely presentation, but it's very, very not a horror movie. It's it's elegant, you know. It's pristine. It's just really, really pretty. So mm-hmm. those are the kind of films I like. Like I love Yasuhiro Ozu, who is just almost impenetrable. I mean, his films are are pure Japanese. <laughs> okay. <laughs> 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 so I always have a hard time recommending them because, I mean, one of the things about Japanese storytelling is that it's so much, just like the Japanese language itself, is considered what they call a high-context language versus English, which is a low-context language. Mm-hmm. In English, you generally speak exactly what you want to say, um, and the unspoken doesn't play as big a role, mm-hmm. where Japanese, um, the unspoken and the cultural clues play an incredibly high role in that the, the actual language itself, what the words you say are not as important as the context in which you say them. I uh, I, I kind of experienced that a little bit with um, with Snowpiercer. Mm-hmm. So uh, I don't know if you've... Have you seen that movie at all? No, I haven't. I've heard of it, but I haven't yeah. seen it. So uh, it's... Uh, I'm going to get his name wrong. It's like Bong Joon-hoon um, is the director. He did uh, The Host. Uh, he's, he's a Korean director. Yeah. And uh, so he's he and an American screenwriter adapted a French graphic novel. Uh, to make a, a, a basically a combination of uh, American Korean movie, uh-huh. so it's already got like a whole bunch of cultural variations going for it. But then it just the storytelling aspect is very like sort of Western, sort of Eastern, kind of meet in the middle a little bit. So it's I think a lot of people felt it was very uneven. Uh-huh. Uh, because the hero wasn't going the the way we know the hero to go. He was going back and forth. I mean, there was just this kind of cultural clash that yeah, actually made for a really interesting movie, but I think was harder to sell to Western audiences because we're not familiar with that type of storytelling in that way, you know? Oh, yeah, totally, yeah. <laughs> so it became a lot of, like, word-of-mouth stuff. You're like, no, seriously, Snowpiercer is good. You should watch it. Yeah. <laughs> well, and that, that context, as a translator, it's really difficult because you have to make a lot of decisions about what what they're trying to say rather than what they are actually saying. And I know um, one of my friends who was who was translating uh, Final Fantasy, the one of the video games so it was this very famous translation choice that he made that upset some people but was absolutely correct whereas at the end of the movie one of the the characters looks at another character and in japanese says thank you and he translated it as i love you because oh. that's what they were really saying okay so he took the 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 meaning surrounding the words yeah okay uh no because so um so upcoming this weekend, as of the recording of this podcast, is uh, Geek Girl Con in Seattle. Oh yeah, and uh, yeah, so that's it, this weekend. Yep, that's this weekend. Oh nice! I've never been to that, but I've always heard wonderful things about it. You should come by; it's going to be awesome. Yeah, <laughs> I want. To, I would love to. I'm. I'm only permitted so many conventions per year. <laughs> I can understand that, um, but yeah, I'm doing a, a, a panel on subversion in Western animation. And one of the, uh, an example I give of how, you know, the reason I focused on Western animation is because we have this issue, especially with um, the translation process from, you know, Japanese anime over to uh, American um, animation, 
that we lose stuff in the translation, and that can create some complications when you're trying to protect children, quote-unquote. Uh, oh, yeah. Because there was the whole Sailor Moon thing with uh, sailors, oh. Neptune, and Uranus. <laughs> Oh, sure. I mean, that's been going on for, you know, I mean, that's been going on forever. I mean, you had like, like, I remember when I was a kid and watching the TV show Star Blazers, Mm -hmm. um, you know, Dr. Dr. Sane was always chugging his big bottles of spring water, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Now that I'm an adult, I'm like, that's not spring water. (laughs) Because Japan has very different standards about that. I mean, they just, as as a culture, they don't, um, you know, they don't feel that uh, that protect the children vibe, I think, as much as American culture does. Mm-hmm. And largely that's because Japan as a culture is so is so ridiculously safe mm-hmm. that they don't even think about it, right? Yeah, no, it's it, it's it's so interesting to watch those like old anime shows from when I was a kid and just you know, also the gender swapping of characters too, like characters that are voiced you know, are dubbed over by, like, a woman's voice, but are intended to be male characters, and, oh, yeah. or vice I mean, versa. That, um, there was an old TV show, it was, it's called Gatchaman, but it was done in English as Battle of the Planets, mm-hmm. and the, the lead villain was a hermaphrodite. <laughs> <laughs> of course, that's not going to fly in American comics, so they, or American cartoons, so they completely cut that out, but you still have this big, bulky, you know, villain who has this bright ruby red lipstick on. Exactly. It's like, the more changes they make, the harder it is to understand the story after a while. We're like, I don't, why are they, if they're that close, and they're just like, especially with Sailor Moon, it's like, they're cousins? Because they're doing things that I don't think most cousins would do. Um, like, I love my cousins, but we're not that close. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, uh, and especially when it comes to things like that because you know i mean the the view on homosexuality in japan is so is so completely and vastly different mm-hmm. than it is here um you know which is something you could you could dive in for for you know books and books and books and people do all the time and it tends to get people very upset but yeah. <laughs> they are. well because it's not it's not politicized right i mean in america mm-hmm. Your sexuality is so much a part of your political identity as well, and so yeah. it becomes this. It's like it's like a team you have to declare for or something. Whereas <laughs> in Japan, sexuality is much more sort of, I guess, fluid mm-hmm. and I think natural in a way, um, to a way that completely surprised me when I went over there. Uh, but homosexuality in children's cartoons is considered to be completely innocent, mm-hmm. and so that's how like you go to. I don't know, it's like I remember reading, like going into this bookstore, and I was just one of those moments where you're just like, wow, I am really in a different country now. <laughs> because there was this guy and his eight-year-old daughter, I don't know if she's eight, but she looked like, I mean, around that, like eight or nine-year-old daughter, <laughs> and she was just sitting there flipping through the most filthy, you know, guy-on-guy, hardcore porn action comic books i mean just like seriously like yeah you know like that stuff like a lot of people are familiar with it now and they don't realize that it's it's for kids you know and you know and he looked at her like any endearing little father would and he's like honey you can have two but that's it <laughs> oh that's awesome oh yeah yeah but it's totally different and you know, i was like and a lot of that's because you know i was I would talk to some people, and they're like, "Well, homosexuality isn't isn't real sex, and so kids can play with it because it's completely harmless. You know, it's, oh. it's just playtime." Yeah, mm-hmm. 
it's sort of how it's treated, you know, and that's why I said it gets it gets people upset when that, they hear that. But a lot of so you have that on some of these younger shows, and like you have this whole um, this Takarazuka Theater, which is this all female theater, which um, feel you know has these woman and woman romances, and they're like because to young girls, that's a very innocent way to sort of play with romance and sexuality without having to deal with the reality that comes from uh, a man on man or man and woman relationship. So so it, so it has its its version of innocence but it's also got a very like complicated cultural context at the oh, same yeah. time god it's so complicated and you know it's it's complicated to the point to where it's like a danger zone i almost i, I usually don't talk about it on podcast because i'm i know people are going to get upset about it and i'm like i'm sorry it's not my fault <laughs> so we, we we didn't dive in all that much into it so you're, uh, i think you're good um and so uh we're actually we're actually uh over an hour Um, and I mean, this is, this has gone by so fast. I mean, I, I always worry that sometimes I won't have enough to talk about, but I always end up having, you know, you, you obviously bring plenty to this. Uh, Oh yeah. yeah. Uh, but thank you so much, Zach, for coming on the show. Um, uh, before we go, uh, where can people uh, find you online and, uh, what, what, if there's anything you want to plug, uh, go ahead and plug it. Okay, so I mean, online I'm, I'm on Twitter at just Zach Davison. That's the easiest way to find me, or you can just throw my name into Google and I pop up pretty easily. But I, am, <laughs> so I have two main things to plug that I'm really excited about. My first one has got to be my book, Yure the Japanese Ghost, which is the culmination of all of my studies. And it, it came out um, a couple months ago, but it's Halloween, so everyone should go buy my my ghost book as well. Um, and <laughs> The new deluxe hardcover version of Wayward is coming out, and it is just awesome. Jim got his copies of it today. None of the rest of us have it, but he was sending around photos, and it's got it's got everything right. It's got all of all of the Wayward stuff we've done, all of the alternate covers, and it's got all of my essays plus um, some new ones that I wrote. So it has absolutely everything in there. And considering the fact that. You know, we were we were just talking about this. We we're like, can you just like and imagine that like it hasn't been that much more than a year that mm-hmm. we all started this, and now we've got this really amazing sort of monument to our work that I am incredibly proud of. So that's awesome. Now yeah. I know what I'm picking up later. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's like sold. Um, well, Zach, thank you once again. And uh, if if anyone is interested in, in following me, you can find me at darling underscore Sammy. Uh, you can go to Maniacal Geek, the website, as well as uh, follow on Facebook and uh, go to iTunes for the podcast. Give us lots of scars and all that kind of stuff. Um, but uh, on behalf of uh, That Girl with the Curls, thank you, Zach. And good night, everybody. Good night. Bye-bye. <laughs>